I inherited a large staff for a company called Echo Bay Mines in Edmonton, and the site itself was on the Arctic Circle. But when I went up to the Arctic Circle to meet uh, one of the people I'd be reporting to, he told me that uh, he didn't want to see me again, get on the plane, and that's that. And I asked him why, and he gave me the opportunity to speak to him. And what he said is, Peter, do you see all these volumes behind me? They're all dusty. He goes, I never open them. They're the monthly financial statements, and they don't mean a thing to me. Welcome to Spend Culture by Pecurify. I'm your host, Danny Howe, and throughout this podcast series, we'll be uncovering the stories, the struggles, and victories of bold leaders who are redefining corporate finance from the front line of business. In this first episode, we'll be profiling Peter Gerbert, a global finance leader with the formidable record of helping companies improve their bottom lines by tens of millions of dollars. Peter, who also lectured at Berkeley, Rutgers, and the University of San Francisco, has some a simple philosophy that explains his success. Take the blinders off. Don't be, if you're in financial accounting, there's tremendous opportunities outside of financial accounting and working with management to make the business decisions they have to make. What it means is uh, you've got to get out of your office. You've got to get on that factory floor. You've got to work with the managers. You've got to work with the line managers. You've got to understand the product. You've got to understand the entire bill of materials. You need to get out of your office, expand your horizons. And the more you do that, you will proportionately gain opportunity as you go through your career. But let's wind back a little. Before we take Peter's advice, let's examine how he came to hold these opinions. It's the early 90s, Windows 95 is still a few years away, and the semiconductor industry is still very much the holy grail of venture capital. In this backdrop, Peter, an upstart accountant who cut his teeth in the Canadian mining industry, has just bagged a coveted role as the Director of Finance at VLSI Technology, one of the early pioneers of ASICs or application-specific integrated circuits. What happened was, as soon as I got there, I was literally pulled aside. I was shunned by a lot of my co-workers in finance, but the CEO, who was also the founder, pulled me aside and says, Peter, I've got some issues here, and I'm not getting the answers I want out of my finance department because it doesn't intuitively fit what I'm trying to do. Peter distinguished himself easily and, more importantly, quickly. His early experience balancing books in the frigid winds of the Arctic Circle taught him the importance of stepping out your comfort zone. And to finance executives, that amounts to looking beyond the numbers and examining the company from an entrepreneurial lens. And yet, even at a growing tech company such as the one he was working for, Peter found both accountants and finance executives comfortably resigned to their desk. And so, Peter's boss looked to him for answers. He didn't understand why his sales numbers, his revenues weren't going up, but his volume was. He wasn't getting the right answers out of the traditional accounting reports he was getting. He pulled me aside and asked me, could we develop customer P&Ls? Could we understand where our money was coming from? Peter had a solution, ABC, or activity-based costing. Even though ABC is by no means a novel approach, Deploying it in a company in the early 90s was a revolution of sorts. 
As a young man, Peter had devoured the works of Bob Kaplan and Robin Cooper, two Harvard professors who had pioneered this approach. And so he went to work on this career-defining project. I had a chance to participate in the changing of an entire business model. And we went through that and immediately added approximately, looking back, I'm going by memory now, $50 million a year to the bottom line. And the company looked totally different. And I was able to do it because I took a totally different approach. I probably, uh, a fraction of the cost if you're bringing consultants in. In my opinion, it is true that the traditional accounting methods, and they'll tell you that in the text to this very day, is right. that they have trouble, or that particular part of accounting has trouble identifying with that type of an issue. Basically, where they're at is they want to produce financial statements. They want to, and they need to, adhere to regulatory requirements in the United States, such as uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, which is a big, big deal. There's an emphasis on controls. There's an emphasis on um, on the FDA in the biotech industry. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. But right. even in manufacturing, you've got some very stringent SEC requirements now. And the traditional accountants will focus on that. They'll focus on value of inventories and make sure you've got it right. Although they don't really have a total understanding of that usually. And you have to bring in the other side of the accounting equation, which is the management side. And I still see that as an ongoing problem and it will be for a long time. In the late 90s, the semiconductor industry began to plateau. Around the turn of the 21st century, the dot-com boom, the predecessor to the current mania around tech startups, began to reshape the contours of the American dream. Peter, however, set his sights on the biotech industry, which was arguably less glamorous. But it offered the rare opportunity for tremendous growth and a chance to be at the vanguard of the kind of change that would directly inform the day-to-day of the healthcare industry. I went into uh, biotech and joined uh, Genentech, which was the granddaddy of all of them. And in, in a very similar role, I was the senior finance person head up all of operations in a time when they were going through some dramatic growth and had to make some major decisions. And um, the CEO looked to me to help him with a lot of those decisions. Peter, whose entire philosophy revolves around looking beyond the numbers and getting your hands dirty with tasks outside of the role of finance, took a special interest in procurement. That area of operations which is often ignored, but is ironically ever so crucial. You've got to, your suppliers have to be uh, qualified, first of all. If they're not qualified, you can't use their product. You've got to go out and you've got to ensure that they're doing everything right as well. Just like people are going to come and look at us right, and make sure we're doing everything right. We have to have a very, very robust quality department. They go out and they do these vendor audits in order to be qualified. So again, anything that touches the product has got to be letter perfect. So procurement becomes an very important way of life in the biotech industry. 
way. And it's got to be right on top of its game. And fortunately for me, in my last job, I had a guy that a lot of people thought he was very anal, the head of my procurement department. But because he was, we did not have that much problem with audits. They drove us crazy sometimes. But again, that was an area that we really had to be on top of. And the other area that was very interested in procurement, not just the external auditors, but also our internal auditors. And right. so if something doesn't doesn't fit right here, right. Uh, we'd like to catch it first before it goes anywhere else. Right. So any, and similarly with any of our IT projects, internal audit was also extremely interested in that. And when I say internal audit, there's actually two internal audit groups. There's one that's the operations, and there's also one that is finance-based, and we get both of them. Right. So it, it, it's like, I won't say double whammy, because we're all on the same page, and we all want to ensure that our product is going to meet all of the compliance standards that are set out in any of those things that we just talked about. Notice how Peter pointed out that the procurement person was considered anal by a lot of people in his company. Perhaps they were right, but try to put yourself in his shoes. You are responsible for issuing purchase orders for things that your lab needs. And typically, given the time-sensitive nature of experiments within the biotech and pharma industry, these things need to be procured as soon as possible. No one wants to be that guy who jeopardized years of research because the regent that the researchers needed wasn't brought in on time. But alongside, the procurement person is also answerable to finance. It's his responsibility to ensure that everything purchased for the lab has a clear audit trail and meets the quality requirements laid down by the FDA and other regulatory bodies. Whether it's your accounts payable clerk who's dealing with an onslaught of invoices and a snail-like pace of manual approval processes, the controller who's constantly fretting about cash flow and the accuracy of his financial reports. A single mistake you make affects both research and finance department in dramatic ways. And yet, these problems aren't specific to biotech companies alone. Indeed, one of the fundamental reasons why B2B technology came to dominate American business was the need to bring procurement, finance, and the actual operations of the company on the same page. Peter, however, believes that if technology has to be adopted, it ideally needs to be flexible and easy to use. I was once involved just a month or so ago here in looking at, at a procurement situation. It was run by the government actually, and, and I could not believe it. We took all these stickies out, put them on the wall. It was still a manual process. First of all, I couldn't believe they were still operating like they were 30 years ago. And the amount of times that a manager would have to approve the same thing was at least three or four times. And right, guess right. what? At the end of the day, the order was 80% wrong. So I think that if you've got a process that can, can condense that and do it properly, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be, you're going to have a competitive advantage over your competitors. And I think that's a big, big deal going forward. And, and I think that if you've got a product, that can enhance that so that you don't have to spend a lot of time developing it and it's there. It's like I said earlier, wait for it to be developed, jump right. in and have that outside company do all the work, do all the upgrades, do all that kind of stuff. And also 
provide you with the appropriate business intelligence that you need so that you can pull out whatever you need and then massage it any way you want. So it doesn't have to all be pre-built in, Mm -hmm. but make it flexible enough so that that cost data that you talked about Mm -hmm. can come out and you can download it into an Excel spreadsheet, whatever, but the basic information is there. In 2017 alone, venture capital funding totaled $40 billion. Out of all this, 17% went to biotech startups. The question, therefore, is how do biotech companies spend all this money? Do they have a similar problem that the tech industry does, where an enormous flush of capital has created a culture of massive overspending? I would say to that, absolutely. And it's not just the fact that you're putting so much money into one product, but it's the research department that may go off and say, hey, I'm just going to spend $50 million on this project. And you get, you get, uh, you, you, you get big eyes and you see, hey, we can be more than this one, two, or three product company. And you spread the resources too thin. And as you said a few moments ago, to get a drug to market usually takes you about 10 years and a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, uh, I'm going by experience. Uh, again, I was just reading this this morning. In some cases, just, just to get the drug up to certain levels of clinical trials is a hundred million dollars. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's a very lengthy and a very expensive process. And to spend money, free spending of money can really hurt you if you with that one particular drug. That one particular drug, you may go apply to the FDA, you think you've got a sure thing, and all of a sudden the FDA comes back uh, with, um, with, a, with a complete response letter, and you've got to go back and do another clinical trial or two, and it'll take you an extra two years, so you get an extra two years of burn in addition to the cost of the clinical trial. And that's money that you've spent before that you could have saved for something like this. Thank you for listening in on the very first episode of Spend Culture. Do you also have an interesting story to share? We're all ears. Please write to me at danny.how at procurify.com. That's D-A-N-I dot H-A-O at procurify.com. And we can have you on next episode of the Spend Culture podcast. This podcast was sponsored by Procurify, purchase automation software that is reinventing the way companies spend. Please visit our website at www.procurify.com or www.procurify.com to learn more and mention this podcast to get a complimentary demo of our product. See you in the next episode.